How are you guys doing today? Good? Well, I just want you to know that today at 12.30 Mexico City time, our campus in Mexico City is having its first service today. Yay. <laughs> Comunidad de Fe, Mexico City. All right. Well, um, today we're going to start a sermon, a message that is going to be divided in two weeks. Okay. First part is going to be today. Second part is going to be next week. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to finish today, okay? Um, but we're going to study today how do we become believers, and next week we're going to talk about how do we live as believers. As you know, uh, I'm sure you have experienced this, God has a particular way to call our attention when He wants us to come to Him, and one of the most common ones is He shakes up everything that is movable of your life so that He will reveal to you what is unmovable which is himself. And um, one of the best places where we can see this truth revealed, it's found in the second book of Kings, chapter five in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm gonna read half of that passage today, which is what we're gonna study, we're gonna pray, and we're going to find out how do we become believers. Uh, second Kings, chapter five, verse one says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter uh, to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came uh, with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the water of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, 
Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we go into your word, Lord, we know you, that we need your help, Father. I know, Lord, um, that there are barriers that we build in our heart that stop us from understanding what you're telling us right now. And I know that there are hardened hearts in this room that need to be softened by you. Will you make our hearts humble? Will you break through those barriers today, Father, and let us hear the word that you have for us? We ask in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Look, um, this, this passage is one of the most amazing stories of conversions that you will find in the Old Testament. And it is a very unusual passage. If you, if you paid attention to what happened there, the commander of the armies of Syria went to ask for help to the God of Israel. This is very unusual because, uh, as you probably know, Syria and Israel have been at war ever since. Actually, I don't know if you heard the news yesterday, but Israel you know, attacked the capital of Syria yesterday. And this has been happening since then. They, they have been enemies all along. So, so this happening of, of the commander of the army of Syria going to Jerusalem or to Israel to, to ask for help would be like if, if, if a commander of the army today in Syria went to President Assad and, and he sent him with Netanyahu to get help in a synagogue. You know, it is very unusual. But it's also unusual for a different reason. Because as we will see in a minute, you know, Naaman is a very sophisticated, wealthy, and powerful man who is willing to go and seek for spiritual help. See, these things, uh, in oftentimes when the person is, is really very wealthy and doesn't know God, it's very hard to bring them to realize that they need God. I remember when Mark and Laura arrived to Cancun, 2001, and before we opened the church, Mark wanted to talk to a lot of people. He wanted to understand the perception that they had of the church, you know, how they viewed God, you know, how could he bring them into the church. So he talked to all his neighbors and anyone that he would get to, to, to meet there, he would talk to them. And one of the questions that he asked them is like, how can we get the people at the highest level here in Cancun to come to hear the word of God? You know, the owners of the hotels, the owners of the marinas and the golf courses and stuff. And, and the people that he talked to, most of them said to him, they're not going to come. Th these people, if they're not in church right now, they're never going to come. He's like, why? He says, they're going to laugh at you because they see us as very simple people and they see themselves as very sophisticated. They're very wealthy. They don't think they have any need. In other words, these people see themselves the way Naaman saw himself. He didn't know that he needed God. So he didn't realize that he had spiritual thirst. The truth is that every person in the world, whether they know it or not, they have a great spiritual need. So, as we're going to see, this is exactly what happens with Naaman. Today we're going to answer three questions. And the first question is this one. How do we begin to seek God? Said in a different way, what causes that a person with great achievements, with lots of money and lots of power, begins to seek God? See. For a person in that situation or with hopes of great achievements that doesn't know God, uh, they have to open their eyes. They have to be opened to two things, two factors. The first one of them, I put this in your notes, 
you need to become aware that self-sufficiency is an illusion. You need to become aware that this feeling that you have, that you have everything under control, it's a lie. And we see this in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. See, first they tell us in this verse everything that's going well in the life of Naaman. He's a powerful man. He's a very skilled soldier. You know, he has a lot of favor in the eyes of his king. You know, and, and, and the people in, in, in the country admire him. They look up to him. He has a lot of prestige. All that is great, but he's a leper. So what this teaches us, it, it doesn't matter how many achievements to the eyes of the world you can bring into your life. There will always be something that will shake it. There's always going to happen something that is going to shake your life. And this can come from the outside. You know, sometimes all of a sudden we lose a person that we love. You know, and, and, and we realize how, how powerless we are to do anything. Or, or you or someone that you love, you know, it's afflicted by a sickness and, and, and no doctor can do anything about it. Or, or, or a person that was important to you betrays you and just walks away from you. Or your finances collapse and, and, and as much as you try to, to, to fix the situation, nothing happens. See, no amount of success, power, or money can make you immune to these things. And please listen what I'm saying because I am not telling you that some of these things may happen to you. I'm telling you they are going to happen to you. And when these things happen, you know, even to the most self-sufficient person, all of a sudden you feel powerless. And, and it shakes you. And you know why it shakes you? Because not only do you realize that you no longer have control, all of a sudden you realize you have never had control. That your life is exposed to a ton of things that are completely outside of your control, that your life has always been fragile and vulnerable. But it can also come from the inside. You know, you, we all know this. We have a fallen nature. You know, there's, there's factory defects that we all have. They just show in different ways in different people. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're a very insecure person and you're trying to cover it all the time. You know, you're afraid that someday people are going to find out that you're just a phony. So you're all the time afraid and overcoming it with certain behaviors. Maybe, maybe you're just an envious person and it bothers you when you see the success of other people and you hold this anger in your heart towards them. Or, or maybe you are a person that is very wise in your own eyes. You know, you don't listen to anybody's advice. You're not teachable because you think you, all, you already know everything that you need to know. Or maybe, you know, you have just an addiction to something. You know, and, and, and these conditions are there, you know, and, and you may be living in denial, so you don't do anything about it. But you know what happens with these things that are inside of you? That if you just leave them there without doing anything about it, one day they come out and they take over your life and they ruin everything. And it shakes your life completely. The Bible teaches us that Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. Which means it doesn't matter what perfect life you create for yourself. Something is going to happen that is going to open your eyes to the fact that you're not self-sufficient. 
something will go wrong. And oftentimes people ask, why does something always have to go wrong? We live in a fallen world, but um, the Bible tells us that God will use anything for the good of those who love him. I have noticed that it, it is for some people, very sadly, the only way in which God can wake you up from that dream that you are self-sufficient. But that's just the first factor. And it's important to see the second one because there's a lot of people that go through these things and never seek God. So here's the second factor. First one, self-sufficiency is a lie. The second one says, you need to become aware that the world cannot help you. You have to open your eyes to the fact that the most important needs that you have cannot be fulfilled by the resources that you can get in this world. And, and it's important that you see this because no spiritual progress will ever happen in your life until you don't understand this. The world cannot really help you. Look at the things that Naaman had in Syria. He got connections. You know, he, he, he knows the king. He goes and speaks to the king. He knows the people that hang out with the king. He has a lot of money. The amounts of money that are mentioned in this passage are ridiculous. Okay, we're talking about the salary for a regular person for like 150 years. You know, there's a ton of money. He's a very skilled person. He's a very good soldier, very brave he has won a lot of battles, okay? But they, all those things are of no use against this terrible disease. And we can see how desperate he is for what he's willing to do, okay? So, so he hears from this slave that there might be help in Israel. And what does he do? He goes to the king who sends him to another king. He goes to see the king of Israel and look what he brings with him. Verse 5 says, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So what he brings with him to Israel is the same things that he has in Syria. He brings his connections, you know, with the letter. Look, I know the king. He's a pal of mine, you know. Uh, he brings a ton of money, and, and he brings his knowledge, his experience at war. Because as we're going to see in verse 13, he was expecting that something big was going to be asked of him. He was expecting that a great task was going to be required of him. So he brings everything that the world has to offer with the hope that he's going to be able to earn or purchase the cure. But what he's going to have to learn and what the Bible teaches us is that there is not going to be spiritual progress in your heart until you understand that the world doesn't have what you most need. The first place what he learns this is when he arrives with the king of Israel. Look at verse 7. It says, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. See, the king of Israel has two concerns. The first one, this is going to create an international incident. This guy is, is, is looking for a fight. How can he possibly think that I can cure this guy of his leprosy? But the biggest concern that the king of Israel has is that clearly these people don't understand how the God of Israel works. See, we can't be too hard with them, with Naaman or the king of Syria, because they, they don't have any other frame of reference. They believe that the God of Israel works exactly as the gods of the other nations around Israel. See, in the other uh, um, religions, in the other nations, 
God and the religious structure of the country were an extension of the culture and of the people in power. All the priests, all the prophets, all the religious structure worked for the king. You know, he paid them, he sustained them because it was a form of social control. This is why even though uh, Naaman, what he heard is there's a prophet in Israel, he goes straight to the king. He, go, he doesn't go looking for the prophet, he goes looking for the king because he's expecting the prophet to work for the king. Like in other nations in that time and even today, you know, that's the reason why a lot of people think that they can buy blessings from God. I mean, I don't know if you have read in the history of the church, but for, for, for centuries, the Catholic Church sold you your entry into heaven. And, and even today, in many Christian churches, people think that they can purchase blessings. I had a person come to me once uh, in Cancun and, and said to me, um, excuse me, pastor, uh, this family member has cancer. Um, how much is for a prayer to cure cancer? And I thought, what? What did you just ask? And he said, well, it's just that the church where I'm coming from, uh, depending on the level of the prayer, was the offering that I had to make. How much is a prayer for cancer? I looked at Karina and said, we've been doing this wrong all along. You know, <laughs> we could be rich. <laughs> Nobody told us, you know. <laughs> but that's the problem, you know. Some people believe that they can actually purchase the blessing. So Naaman arrives there thinking that that's exactly the same way it's going to work in Israel. But in a hurry, he's going to learn that that's not the case. Because you see, when the king of Israel tours his clothes, what he's trying to tell Naaman is, my friend, you just arrived to the only place in the world where the prophet doesn't work for the king. Where the God is real. He lives in his own reality. You know, we, we can tell him what to do. God is not a projection of our heart or our culture. He's actually the judge of our heart and our culture. So here we don't have the prophet on a leash telling people what I pay him to say. Here salvation and blessing cannot be purchased. The one that speaks and saves is God. And listen, thank God for the words of the king because until Naaman doesn't understand this, until you and I don't learn this lesson, that all the money, all the power, all the connections cannot truly help you. There is not going to be spiritual progress. And look, this is extremely relevant today. Because I don't know if you have paid attention what's happening to our culture. But for the last 40 years, this is the way that religion is seen in our secular society. If you go today to a secular college... And you take a class on compared religions, they're going to tell you that religion is a projection of our culture. In the idea of a transcendent God that lives in his own reality is not even considered by them because they think of themselves as sophisticated, very high thinkers, modern people. So who is going to solve the deep problems that we have in our societies? How are we going to deal with poverty, racism, wars, you know, like the injustices that happen in the world? Who's going to solve them? But that's how, how secular society sees it. Rebecca Piepert is an author that has written many books. She wrote a book called uh, Hope Has Its Reasons. And in that book, she tells uh, the, the, the story of an, something that happened to her while she was auditing some of the 
counseling courses that they taught in Harvard University. She wasn't taking the courses, she was auditing them. And she's sitting at a class, and one of the professors exposes a case study where he explains to the students how he proved brilliantly to a young man how the behavior of his mother had ruined his life. You know, how his life had been shaped by the dysfunctional behavior of the mom. And he proves this brilliantly. But when he's done, she raises her hand and asks, okay, and what happens if the patient asks the therapist then, how do I do now to forgive her? Now you prove to me it was all her fault, but this is hurting me and I'm suffering. How can, how can you teach me to forgive her? And the answer of the professor was, well, if, if the patient asks you that, you have to tell him, I wish you good luck. And all the students got very angry. And one of them raised his hand and said, I'm sorry, isn't the goal of counseling to alleviate the suffering of a person? Wouldn't it be helpful to this patient to learn how to forgive the mother and stop suffering? So the, the, the professor gets completely serious and says, we are scientists here. Forgiveness is a matter of good and evil. You're entering into values. Forgiveness is based on what's right and what's wrong. Who's going to decide what's right and wrong? If, if you want to learn about forgiveness, you're entering into the realm of faith. If what you're looking for is a change of heart, you're studying the wrong career. What is the professor saying? Am I God that I can give a person a heart that's forgiving, that I can heal it, that, that can have faith? See, the world cannot possibly give us what we most need. And this is what the king of Israel is saying to this guy. He's saying, Naaman, there's a lot of things that I can do as the king, but there are things that only God can do. You are not understanding and there's no possibility of advance, spiritual advancement until you don't see those two factors. Self-sufficiency is an illusion and the world cannot really help you. Okay, if you can see those things clearly, if you truly see them, we can go then to the next question. How do we find God? Once you see that, you're going to need God. So how do we find him? See. Let's see what the passage says about how did Naaman found him. As you're going to see, this passage shows us that there are two changes that need to happen in your heart for you to truly seek God. And if they don't happen, you're going to become very religious, but you're not going to have a relationship with God. So these changes need to happen, both of them. First change, you need to go from wanting help in your suffering to wanting forgiveness for your sin. You have to go from just asking God, please help me stop hurting, to saying, please forgive me for I have sinned. It is normal for all of us in the beginning to run towards God because we're suffering. We want strength, we want peace, we want him to help. But at some moment in your life, there has to be the transition when you open your eyes and you realize that your main problem is your sin, that it's blocking your relationship with God. And that what you need most over everything else is the forgiveness of your sin. Look how this happens to Naaman. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? 
Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Notice, please, that he didn't say, let him, you know, let him come to me now so he realizes there's a miracle worker in Israel. He doesn't say that. He says, let him know that there is a prophet in Israel. Prophets were people that heard directly from God. They always conveyed the truth. What God said, that's what they said, okay? So he doesn't say, this man needs a miracle worker. He says, what he needs is a prophet. But then in verse 15, look at what happened. After Naaman is healed, he says, the Naaman and all his attendants went back to the men of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Did you notice what he just said? He didn't say, now I know that your God is powerful or that you're really a powerful man. See, this saying of Naaman is one of the most revolutionary phrases that a Gentile says in the Old Testament because he didn't say, now I see that your God is more powerful than my God. What he's saying is, now I know that only your God is God. There's only one God and it's clearly this God. So what changed? Didn't he just go for a cure? Wasn't that all he was looking for? See, what happens, and we're going to see this more clearly in, in just a minute. When we answer the last question, we're going to see this more clearly. But what happens is the nature of the cure, you know, the simplicity of the cure takes him out of his false beliefs. See, this shows us what Elisha was really after. Elisha was not just trying to heal the sickness of this man. Yes, the suffering of, of, of Naaman is what brought him to seek for God. You know, it destroys his illusion of self-sufficiency, realizes that the world cannot help. But at some moment, he had to make the transition. Naaman understands that by the nature of the cure, by how humble you need to be in order to receive this cure, he realizes, I didn't really know God. I don't have a relationship with the real God and understand his grace. See, his, his beliefs all of a sudden changed. His faith changed. That's what we see in verse 15. And we see that the true intentions of Elisha were to change the heart of Naaman so that he could see God. We see this all over the Bible. Uh, you remember in, in Mark chapter 2, when a group of friends are carrying in a stretcher a friend that is paralyzed and they get to the house where Jesus is but it's so crowded they have to climb the roof, make a hole and bring him down. You remember that instance? What did you think that the, the friends thought that her, their paralyzed friend needed? They all thought that what he needed was physical healing. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what do you think they thought? What? We went through all that for his sins to be forgiven? They think that the, what the guy most needs is physical healing, but Jesus is telling them, you have no idea what the real problem of your friend is. The problem is there's something that is blocking his relationship with God. The problem with Naaman was his self-sufficiency, how good he was at what he did and how much money he had made. You know, this way of thinking had him living for himself instead of for God. The cure was the way to destroy that belief, cure the sickness of his heart, obtain forgiveness for his sin, and begin a true relationship with God. That's the first change. 
you have to notice, you have to see that the real problem is that you don't really have a relationship with God if you don't understand that your problem is sin. And yes, I mean, you, you, you probably have financial problems. You, you probably have health problems. Maybe your future is very uncertain. But none of those things could destroy you if they were not your source of security. None of them. If you had something stronger to hold on to, to sustain you, what you need is God. And when you finally see that, then there's going to start being an advancement, spiritually speaking, in your heart. But there's something else that needs to change, and it's the heart of the lesson that Naaman learns. You need to go, I put in your notes, from believing that you can earn your blessings with your performance to learning to trust and rest in God's free grace. You need to learn that you can't do things so that God will save you. You know, and, and, and it's very interesting because, you know, intellectually most of us know that. And yet many of us are still trying to do it. This change needs to happen, and it happens, as I said before, you know, you're going to see more clearly now, by the nature of the cure. See, Naaman is going to learn lessons of humility, and they begin in, verse, in the first part of verse 10. It says, and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, see, this infuriates Naaman because he was expecting Elisha to come, and Elisha doesn't even go out. You know, to, to, to Naaman, that's humiliating but he doesn't understand that he's not trying to humiliate him. He tries to teach him that this cure is not for proud people. It's not for strong and powerful people. It's for people that are humble at heart. That's the first lesson of humility. And then the second one, you know, uh, he's very angry because he's expecting that he's going to come out and he's going to do something special. Look at verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman is expecting the, the, the prophet to come out and do a spectacle very loudly in front of all the people, you know. But, but Elisha doesn't want Naaman to misinterpret things. He doesn't want him to think that it's because the power of Elisha. He doesn't want him to think that he's doing this because Naaman is a very important man. What Elisha wants is for him to understand that whatever happens is by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. And this is why the cure is so simple. The cure, the end of verse 10 says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Naaman is furious and he goes away throwing a tantrum. But why? The answer is found in the beginning of verse 13. It says, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? See, Naaman was expecting that Elisha was going to ask him to do something amazing. You have to go and kill the dragon and rescue the princess bride and bring her back. And he's thinking, I can do that. You know, I'm good at these things. I can believe in a God like that that is going to challenge me and I can earn my blessing. That's the base of most of novels and fairy tales, right? I mean, you have to defeat adversity and kill the dragons and recuperate the girl and everybody lives happily ever after. So the reason for the fury, Naaman thinks 
just go and get in the river? Any person can do that? I mean, even a little boy can go and dip himself in the river. Even the weakest person in the world can just drag himself or herself to the, to the river and dip seven times. Even the worst of people, thieves and prostitutes, and they can do that. Are you telling me that there's no difference between me and everybody else? Is this a God without standards? This is why he's so furious. But I want you to consider for a minute why the solution has to be so simple. See, I don't know if you truly believe in God or if you really have a relationship with him. But if there is a God that created the whole universe with his breath, that created you, that gave you life, that thought of you with purposes in mind before the beginning of time and it's sustaining every second of your life, then shouldn't you be living primarily for him? Shouldn't you be living exactly to glorify him every minute of your life? And the answer to that question is yes. That's the way that you should be living. But you know what's the truth? No one does that. Nobody. Not even good people. Even the best of people live for themselves. We have a fallen heart. And we're more concerned with ourselves than with anything else. And we're just thinking of ourselves. And then when we get in trouble or something goes wrong, then we run to God. And if that is the case, if none of us really live the way that we, sh we should, then any type of salvation is going to have to be for free. Because the great work that you would have to do in order to earn your entrance into heaven, you cannot possibly do it. It's impossible. See, Naaman hasn't realized this, but the truth is the God of Israel has a very high standard. His standard is perfection. The righteousness of God. You would have to be perfect to be able to be in his presence. And we can never do that and therefore... It has to be easy. It has to be free. And there can't be a difference for other you know, people depending on where they are because we're all in the same place. Romans 3.23 says, they all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So yes, for a children is the same solution. For a prostitute, for a thief, and for you, Naaman, and for you, and for me, we're all exactly the same. We need him. It's too easy, he thought. Have you, have you come across people that say that to you? I have. People have said to me like, that's too easy. Are you telling me I don't have to do anything? And I'll be saved? And I tell them, no, 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 that's not what I said. I didn't say you don't have to do anything. You have to admit that you can't do anything and that you need him. You have to realize this. And this is what's happening here. You know, what Naaman is realizing is it's not that it's too easy. It's too hard. Look, we'll see that with what the servants tell him. I'm going to reread verse 13. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? What, is, what, what, what the servants are telling him is like, this great work of salvation, you know, is to admit that there's no great work for salvation that you can possibly accomplish. It's not too easy, it's too hard. And this is why so many people never receive it. 
Because to truly be a follower of Christ, what you need is to know that you need him. That you can't do it, that he does it for you. Naaman feels insulted because he thinks it's too easy. But the servants tell him, no, it's actually too hard. Shut up, take a bath, get into the water. <laughs> and thank God. His heart is humbled. He goes obediently. And he is saved. Because as we're going to see next week, when he comes out of that water, he's not only healed. He has been saved. His faith has changed. So the last question. How is it possible that all this is within our reach how can it be so easy why is salvation free you and I know that God's standard is actually very 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 high so have you ever wondered why then is it available to us in such an easy manner um, the answer to that is very 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 simple the great work that Naaman thought that he was going to have to perform has already been done for him by someone else. And for you and I, too. That great work, someone had to go through fire and water for our salvation. Of course, um, Jesus didn't have to go through physical fire and water. Jesus went through an ocean of divine wrath when he went to the cross. He carried with all the punishment that you and I deserved for the way that we lived life without him. And yes, he went and literally defeated the dragon of evil and rescued his bride, which is the church. He did this great work. And because of him doing that, all that Naaman has to do is go and get in the water. Go and dip himself seven times in the Jordan. And because of what he did, you and I can just be cleansed. All we have to do is know that we need him know that he did these things for us know that we lived in rebellion to him and to open our heart to him and say will you clean me will you enter into my heart this is exactly what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper if you want to prepare your elements we're going to celebrate it together But as we prepare the elements, I want you to ask yourself, have I made this, these two changes in my heart? Do I know that what I need most in this life is not just to be free of suffering? What I need is the forgiveness of my sins. Because sin is what blocks my relationship with God. 
Have you come to realize that it's impossible for you to earn this? And that this is why Jesus did what he did. So that you and I would be forgiven, totally forgiven. The old psalm, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we are claiming to the world, I have put my trust in the great work, the sacrifice that Jesus did for me. Jesus tried to explain this to his disciples on that last, last supper. He surprised them completely because that was a, a ritual that they did every year during Passover. You know, the, the head of the family would get a piece of bread and say, this is God. This is the bread of God. And they would pass it. And, you know, this is the blood that was shed and put in the doors so that we would be spared. But he surprised everyone when he said, this is my body. I am God. And my body is going to be delivered for you. And this is my blood. And it's going to be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in memory of what I'm doing. And they didn't even know what he was about to do, but you and I do. He voluntarily laid his life for you. He shed his blood so that you would be clean. So let's pray and celebrate this together. Father... Thank you, Lord, for carrying the wrath of God for me so that I could be clean. Father, this is something that we cannot possibly understand, how a perfect being like you was willing to come down here and live a perfect life and then give up that perfect life for me. I remember with joy and sadness the sacrifice that you had to do at the cross for me. And I remember that sacrifice as I eat this bread. Let's eat the bread together. your blood Lord so that I would be clean so that you now see me with the perfection that your son Jesus Christ lived his life and I remember that sacrifice as I drink this juice distract us but give us the strength Father to go to your word every day and be in communion with you and that we would carry your presence in our heart every moment of the day 
remind us that we can help each other to fulfill our physical needs, but what we really need can only come from you. Thank you, Lord, for doing this for me. And thank you for opening our eyes to the fact that we can't do it, the world can help us, but you can. We love you. We praise you. It's in the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things. Amen. Before um, you go, I just wanted to mention very fast that on February 4th, that's not next Sunday, but the next, we're going to start a new sermon series called Real Success. We're going to study together what real success means, how God truly made you for purposes that we're going to try and help you identify, how to create your life's mission, how to learn to manage your time, set godly goals and reach them. And we are going to provide uh, for a small group study that goes with this series. So if you're not in a small group, I encourage you to sign in for one. Uh, it's an eight-week series. At least sign up for eight weeks. And you're going to see that if you go through this series and do the homework that the small groups are going to do, the direction of your life will be godly changed. Okay? We love you. I hope that God spoke to you today. We will have people here to pray for you if you need to. You're dismissed. And if God gives life, I'll see you the next time. Love you guys.